Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51 through 56, where we'll start, and then we're going to jump over 10 chapters, and you're like, what, 10 chapters? Why is that? Well, most of your Gospels take the next uh, ministry opportunity of Christ to condense it down to one to two chapters between Christ coming in to Jerusalem, or at least setting his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and then when he actually enters Jerusalem, uh, many of the other Gospels take one or two chapters. Well, Luke wants to focus a lot on what they call the Perean ministry of Christ, which is beyond the Jordan, and he takes ten chapters to explain everything that's happening. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. I don't want to get too far ahead. But as we, as we look at this, the direction of the journeying was first eastward when he set his face like flint. And it was eastward through the borders of Galilee and Samaria, then across the Jordan southward toward the region of Perea. And this region is not so designated in the Bible, but is described by the phrase, beyond the Jordan. And as most of these incidents occurred here, this period of the life of Jesus is commonly called his Perean ministry. Luke here emphasizes the divine precision and at the same time the human courage of our Lord. He emphasizes that and he indicates that Jesus saw plainly his coming death and also his glorious ascension, but that he unfalteringly moved forward to the intervening agonies of the cross. Charles Erdman wrote that in his commentary in his gospel on Luke. Christ, at this point in Luke chapter 9, it's, it starts us off there in verse 51, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off reading there, and I'm just going to read through verse 57. And then when we get to the latter part, I'll just break it down uh, phrase by phrase, maybe not read the entire text there once we get to Luke 19. But Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 57, reads like this. Now it came to pass... When the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is where most people agree that Luke was referencing that of Isaiah about a resolute focus toward Jerusalem or a face like flint. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, the Samaritans didn't, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he, being Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. As we look at this scripture today, Luke chapter 9, beginning there in verse 51, we see it starts off, and it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up. And as I read just a moment ago, multiple times does it reference his face. He steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. They rejected him because his face was set toward the journey to Jerusalem. It says that the messengers were sent forth before his face to go and prepare a place for them to go. So we know Christ, his face, this was a phrase that was used to show a resolute focus to get where they had to go. Last week I talked about preparing things and getting, in, uh, and getting things on schedule so that you could go somewhere, whether it be a vacation or whether it be uh, 
uh, retirement planning or funeral planning or whatever it may be. You can't be distracted in that. You've got to be focused. Christ was supremely focused toward the goal that God had called him to do while on this earth. But I want, I want to propose to you something a little different as, as we think about this. That first phrase there, verse 51, that came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up. The approaching goal is not only the death and resurrection, but especially the ascension of Christ. This very phrase, this expression, that he should be received up, is simply the rendering of one Greek word. And that Greek word is ascension. It's ascension. It's talking about Christ when the time had come for him to ascend back to the Father that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. To get to the Father, he had to go through the cross. To get to the Father, he had to exit the tomb. So he set his face toward Jerusalem. It's what Christ did. Because he had to go through these things. Just like the scripture tells us in John 4. John 4, 4 tells us he must needs go through Samaria. That's the King James Version. And he had to go through Samaria. Why was that? Because he had an appointed task with the woman at the well. God knew he had something he had to do there. Christ knew he had something he had to do there. So Christ steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem because he knew he had to accomplish the task, the will of the Father and that was to die on the cross for our sins on behalf, in behalf, in our place of us. It's what he had to do. So he set his face like flint. And when we start this section, it's the Lord's goal. Yes, it was to go to the cross and it was to rise from the empty tomb. But it was to ascend to the Father and sit at his right hand once the work was complete for righteousness. That was the goal. And we should never stop, listen, we should never stop the Easter story at the cross for Christ rose from the grave. We should never stop at the tomb for Christ was to ascend to the Father. Nor should we stop at the ascension for Christ before he was to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the story continues on to this day. The story of Easter, the story of Christ should never the story should never be stopped. You know, there's a hymn that says, we've got a story to tell to the nations that will turn their hearts to the right. A story of truth and mercy of his glorious light. We've got a story to tell. The story doesn't end at the cross. If it did, he would just be a martyr. The story doesn't end at a resurrected tomb, although that would be a phenomenal place to stop. But it doesn't end there. It ends with the fact of the revelation and, and like I said last week, his resurrection justified him before all. But yet the ascension proved when he went up to heaven and he sat at the right hand of the Father. He said, that's where I'm going to be and I'm going to send that comforter. Listen, his time, when the time had come for him to be received up, he focused on what had to be done. What a story of comfort that is suggested here. To know that he is there on the right hand of the Father and he has sent us the comforter. It goes on to say, which is kind of where I get my focus for my whole series, series, that he steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. That's the latter part there of verse 51. Many commentators agree that Luke knew the writings of Isaiah and was recalling the same thought in this very text. 
and where most of the gospel writers have the next activities in the life of Christ, in one to two chapters, Luke says, I want to focus on what Christ did when he steadfastly set his face toward the ascension, when he would be received up. I want to focus on that and show all the ministry that he did beyond the Jordan. What was beyond the Jordan? The Samaritans. Much of those who were not Jews were beyond the Jordan. And so we will, we, it emphasizes to us, because Luke writes his gospel, focused toward the Gentile, focused toward you and me. And he says, these people were worthy of Christ's time. And I want you to understand, you are worthy of Christ's time. Matter of fact, I say worthy, but we are a focus of it. I don't know if we're really worthy of Christ's death, but yet we are, he saw us worthy enough to die in our place, to go across the Jordan to Samaritans who were hated. And I'm going to talk about that some more in just a moment. But Luke emphasized Jesus' determination to complete his mission, that Jesus would complete his, uh, his mission. We are drawn, as we look here, we are drawn to the resolute focus of Christ that we observed in the prophetic text of Isaiah last week. We see that Christ is set on Jerusalem, the holy city of the Jews, the focal point of Jewish worship. Next week, the choir will be singing a song called The Holy City. I'm telling you, you want to be here for that. It's going to be a great song. If you practice any with the choir, come on back. Practice Wednesday night. Practice next Sunday morning. You're going to want to sing this song. It's a great song to sing. But he focused on the holy city. Why is it holy? Because it is Christ's people's worship center. That's the reason why it's holy. Because God has, has christened it, if you will. That's where Christ was going to come. That's where Christ was going to die. And right outside of it is where Christ was going to rise. And it's where Christ called his people to come back to him. In the coming verses, we see the conflict of Jewish focus on Jerusalem and the Samaritan who disagreed with their centrality of worship at Jerusalem. And for most people, the co this conflict and the conversations would deter their focus. This conversation, you see that. It says they did not receive him because his face was set uh, for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so they went to another village. We see this. He sent those messengers, if you will, the missionary planning party. He sent them ahead into Samaria. And, and the people did not receive them. They did not receive them. He, and Christ wanted to get room and board there in that town. Because he was going to have a ministry in that area. And he wanted to be able to be amongst the people. And if you notice, everywhere Christ goes, he wants to be in amongst those that he's ministering to. You know, many a times he would tell the disciples, go into a town and, and tell them, peace be to you. And if they receive you, you stay at that house. Don't you go somewhere else. You stay where the people will receive you. And see, Christ wants us to be amongst the people that he's called us to minister to. So he's wanting to be amongst the Samaritans. But they didn't want him to be amongst them. Which is pretty much a, a large testimony of those who are apart from Christ and far from Christ today. They don't mind if Jesus passes through, but they sure don't want him staying. Right? 
And many of times we're the same way. We don't mind if Christ passes through. Come on through on Sunday, Jesus, but don't hang out with me during the week. We need to be cautious about that. He's either Lord of all or, or not Lord at all. He's got to be a part of your life every single day. And these Samaritans were like, no, we don't want him to be near us. The Samaritans were not hospitable to the disciples. They weren't hospitable to any Jews, especially Jews who had set their face towards Jerusalem. Jesus, and Jesus, it says multiple times in here, he had set his face towards Jerusalem. Multiple times. So Jesus had definitively set his sights on being in Jerusalem. And being a Jew and surrounded by Jews, the Samaritans were going to do whatever they could to hinder their arrival into Jerusalem. They were going to do whatever they could. You ever see people that were so, man, it's almost like their goal in life was to cause you problems. I pray you ain't got nobody like that. But the Jews did that to Samaritans, and Samaritans did that to Jews. I'm not going to paint the Samaritans in, in the worst of lights, because they did it to one another. Neither one of them were right in how they treated any, either one. And I'll basically explain to you what happened, why the Samaritans were as they were. The Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set toward a journey to Jerusalem. And this just brings to the forefront the hatred the two ethnicities had toward one another. And let, let me explain to you, as I was reading in some of my commentaries, they gave some pretty descriptive reasons as to why there was such hatred. These Samaritans were descendants of a mixed race brought by, I'm going to try to pronounce this guy's word, uh, name. I said this in choir practice earlier. You just pronounce it confidently and go on. All right? And uh, they were descendants of a mixed race brought by Esarhaddon. And that was around the 8th century B.C., from, they were brought from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim. That's why I'm going to say it, Sepharvaim. Y'all just, just say that with me, Sepharvaim, okay? And it was to replace the ten tribes that were carried captive to the east. It was a mixed race. What, what does that mean? That means that when they came into the region, God told them not to intermarry with the people around. Well, what did they do? The Samaritans which later became called that, they were Jews. But they intermarried with people that had false gods. And the Jews said, we ain't having none of that. And so they, they split from them, and then they became known as Samaritans. Okay? So what did the Samaritans do? This whole thing about not welcoming them in because Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was the, the central city, the holy city of worship to, G, to God the Father. And they said, you know what, we're not going to be receptive of you. Many a times the Jews would take a totally different path and go all the way across the Jordan, go around a different direction because they didn't even want to interact with the Samaritans. They had much rather add a day's journey to, to their trek than to just cut through Samaria and deal with the Samaritan. Of course, the Samaritans were probably happy about it because they wanted to argue with us and fight, you know? But, but they said, you know what, Jesus says in John 4 that he had to go through Samaria. Because Jesus' salvation is not just for the Jews. Jesus' salvation is for all. And for, for any church that says, we're not reaching out to them. We don't like this group of people or that group of people. We're acting like people outside the will of God. We don't know what manner of spirit we are of when we do stuff like that. It doesn't matter what their economic background is. It doesn't matter what color their skin it is. It doesn't matter what country they are from. Let me tell you something. Christ has given us a mandate 
to go and make disciples of all the nations. Whether you go to their nation or if they're in yours, you make a disciple of them. You don't abandon them. You don't avoid them. You reach out to anybody and everybody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, if anybody didn't have to go to a foreign country, it was Jesus. He left his throne of glory in heaven and said, you know what, I'm going to come to the planet I created to save a bunch of people who have made themselves at enmity with me, who have turned their backs on me and sinned against me after I've been so good to them, but I'm going to come from where I am and I'm going to go to where they are. How much more of a testimony it is to us as believers for us to go where we are to where they are. The lost, whomever they may be. That's a call of us. And, and many people preach this text from an idea of reconciliation or ministry to all races. And that's very clear. You can see that in this text. But as we look at this today, they clearly, not only did they reject them because they were Jews, they rejected them because Christ's focus, he was rejected for his focus to go to Jerusalem. He was rejected for his focus. And he, he, we emphasize this, the, the, the subsequently, let me, let me finish up that, about this Samaritans. They subsequently, the Samaritans did, erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim and henceforth were known as a schismatical sect and continued in a state of deadly enmity with the Orthodox Jews. And in the synagogues, these Samaritans were cursed. In the Jewish synagogues, these Samaritans were cursed. The son of Sirach named them as a people they abhorred. And in the Talmud, we read this terrible passage, let not the Samaritans have part in the resurrection. The Jewish people did not like the Samaritans at all. And to write that into one of their holy books, the Talmud, and to say, let not the Samaritans take part in the resurrection, that's pretty damning. That's, that's a pretty damning statement on the Jews for, for them having such a hateful attitude toward them. Now, granted, they did disobey the Lord and intermarried. They were told not to. But listen, after a time, you, you just got to minister to folks. It doesn't matter what they've done in their past. What can Christ do for them in the present and for their future? We can't just say, oh, they did this in the past. They're no good. Well, we've all had a past, right? We've all got a past that we would much rather not bring up. But you know what? I've got a present with Christ and a future with Christ that I'd love to talk about all the time. Don't bring up my past. And that's these Samaritans, like they, they just, oh, and when you bring up people's past, you want to talk about making conflict with somebody? Just bring it up to them. See how quickly y'all stay friends. It ain't going to be long. And before long, you're going to start figuring out how can I get back at them? I'm so tired of them talking about my past. That's not me anymore. I've made better choices. I'm doing something different. Now, granted, Samaritans had created their own religion and faith. But at the same time, I mean, today for us, we've got to be mindful that we need to reach out to folks and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you see why they would not be welcoming guests to Jews passing through their region to go to Jerusalem. You see that? The hatred was equal, except that Jesus, Jesus was a different Jew, right? Jesus was a Jew for all people, not just for his people, but he was, he was a Jew for all people. And then we see James and John, they're angry and they want to obliterate them for their rejection. 
James and John are like, hey, Jesus, listen, I, I, we don't like those Samaritans. You know that. You're a Jew. You know how they stand before our eyes. Listen, how about we just call down some fire from heaven? Now, listen, if there wasn't ever a precursor for what I'm going to be preaching soon, this is it, okay? Once we get through with this in April, I'm going to go back and finish up Elijah and Elisha. And in 2 Kings chapter 1, we get the account of this very reference. Elijah's sitting up on a mountainside. He's already played a joke on that king's men. And they've gone back and they come back. And he's sitting up on top of the mountain. And the, mount, and the scripture tells us that he's lying on the mountaintop. And, and these guys come up and they say, Elijah, the king wants to see you. And he says, oh. And he says, they say, prophet of God, Elijah, the king wants to see you. And he says, oh, if I'm a prophet of God, may fire come down and burn you up. And then fire comes down and burns them up. Well, somebody had to live. You know, de dead man tell no tales. You ever, you ever seen Pirates of the Caribbean? Somebody had to live to go tell the tale. So anyway, one of the people goes back and tells the king. And the king's like, send out 50 more men. So the king sends out 50 more men. And they say, prophet of God, Elijah, come down from the mountain. The king wants to see you. And, and Elijah says, if I'm a prophet of God, may fire come down and burn you up. Fire comes down and burns them up. And the next, if <laughs> somebody lives, damn it, tell no tell. They, they go back and they tell the king again. King sends men back out. The next guy comes out and he's a little bit smarter. And he says, oh, oh, prophet of God, Elijah, please spare my men. The king needs to see you. Please don't kill us. And the Lord tells Elijah, it's okay, you can go down there now. Anyway, I'm not going to preach that whole sermon because it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to preaching it. But nonetheless, this is where they get this idea from. This is where James and John, the sons of thunder, get this idea from. Can we just call down fire? Because they're right there in that same area. Can we call down fire and just smoke these guys? I am just, you know, you know we don't like Samaritans. We just and Jesus, Jesus responds to him and he rebukes his own disciples. I, 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 when we think about that, as a disciple of Christ, I know I've said things that the Lord was not pleased with. And the Lord's had to rebuke me for things that I've said. We need to be mindful of our hearts and what spirit with which we speak. Toward individuals, toward different things, we need to be mindful of that. The Lord will tell us and he'll rebuke us. You, Blake, you don't know what spirit you're saying that in. That's not in the spirit of the Lord. That's in the spirit of your flesh. And, and, and as Jesus may say, I understand where it comes from, but that doesn't justify what you're saying right now. It doesn't make it right. But I understand it, but it's wrong. And Jesus says, I did not come to destroy people's lives. I have come to save them. And we know if you look over there to John 3, 16, you know, Jesus, is, Jesus isn't about destroying people's lives. If you look at John 3, 17, 18, and 19, a lot of people forget to read those verses. But John 3, uh, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He didn't come to destroy mankind. He came to save it. He didn't come to condemn it. Man's going to condemn themselves. Man's going to condemn themselves. God doesn't condemn anybody to hell. He created hell for Satan and his demons. Man will condemn themselves for hell. And, and, and so God, Jesus tells me, he says, look, I, I didn't come to destroy people's lives. I came to save them. 
Jesus is for the redemption of all lives, including some of those who hated Jews the most. And I, and this is a scripture, I want to say it's in Hebrews, but God is not slack, if some consider slackness, but his desire is that all come to repentance, and this includes those difficult Samaritans. That includes you and me. That includes you and me. He is very patient. Why has Christ not come back? I believe God is being extremely patient. We should be patient with people. We don't always know what's going on in someone's lives. We don't know what's brought them to the place that they're at, and it's not for us to really know that. But I'll tell you what, what, what we do know, we need to pass on, in that Jesus is a God of redemption and of forgiveness and of healing. And that's what we need to be sharing. So what do we take from this today? What do we take from Luke 9, 51 through 57? We often want to defend Jesus, right? James and John wanted to defend Jesus. We want to defend Jesus when Jesus can clearly defend himself when he needs to. We must be cautious not to take our emotions and frustrations out on others to whom Jesus is being patient with for salvation. This isn't a call to be ignorant or lazy, but rather to know the will of the Lord so when, uh, so when to know it is appropriate to be on the offensive for the Lord or to let the Lord be his own defender. Let's look over to Luke chapter 19 where Jesus does defend his people, but he gets rebuked. Look over to Luke chapter 19, verses 37 through 40. As the song of the choir sang just a moment ago, we're facing to dive into that thought. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is rebuked for his disciples. He is rebuked for his disciples. He's rebuked his disciples. Now he is rebuked for his disciples. But notice, they were wanting to hurt somebody, and now they're wanting to praise the Lord, and now they're fixing to get in trouble for it. You ever been loud? Anybody like to sing at the house, and then you get in trouble for it? My whole life has been about, Blake, you're being too, quiet. You're being too loud. Hush. I had to get off the school bus. My cousin Brian says, I always know when you got off the bus because you'd be singing walking down the road. I knew every commercial, and it drove them crazy. I'd sing every commercial jingle in the book, and it was just what I did anyway. But, but we need to be singing praises to God. Let's look at this. Verses 37 through 40, he is rebuked for his disciples. Look there, verse 37. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And they were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. Now, it's pretty cool, though. The Pharisees were at least in the crowd, right? They came up and they were intrigued. They were curious. And they're in the crowd. And they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that these, if these should be kept silent, excuse me, let me read it correctly. I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. They would immediately cry out. So he, he is rebuked for his disciples. The disciples ring out in chorus over the great works they had seen Christ do. What great things have you seen Christ do in your life? If you have salvation in your heart and in your life, you've seen a great work. 
The Bible tells us that he has taken out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. That is a miraculous work that Christ has done. That is worth praising the Lord over. It is worth shouting. It is worth rejoicing. You've seen the great work. Maybe you saw it in your kids' lives, in your spouse's life, in your grandkids' life. You've seen Christ do great things. So we should rejoice and sing praise. There are great songs out there that, that lead us to sing praise, the, the thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Man, what a great song to sing. It might be new to you, so you might say, I'm a little hesitant to sing it. That's okay, but you need to catch on. You need to go on YouTube and download it. You need to go on iTunes and download it. Spotify, download it. Go somewhere and listen to it and sing. Julie, yesterday, we're out there raking up the yard, and I have my headphones in. She said, you think we all can listen to that so we can hear how it actually sounds? Because I'm singing with headphones in my ear. So I said, all right, I'll go out there and get the speakers. So I went in there and got the speakers, and we were doing a bunch of yard work in the yard. It, it, listen, you need to have God-honoring, glorifying music entering in your heart and in your ears. Listen. We've got all kind of trash we can listen to. Your kids need to be exposed to good Christian music. You need to be exposing them to that. Listen, list out that music. Listen to K-Love. I know they repeat the same songs over and over, but there's some good ones on there. 93.7. Listen to something where you can, you can be edified and encouraged. Listen to some good music. There's plenty of bad music out there, but listen to some good music. And here they are singing and shouting. It says the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice. This is not just a few. This is men, women, boys, and girls. And then from the Gospel of John, it tells us this. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The song they sang and the praise given noted was, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The people recognized the king. They recognized the king. Their praise was appropriately directed and given. And as I pointed out before, the, each gospel is written from a different perspective. When Matthew wrote his gospel, he was writing it to Jewish people so that they could understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. When Luke wrote it, it was to show the Gentiles that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So the Gentiles wouldn't have understood the word Hosanna. But in Matthew and then also in John, we see this word Hosanna it's because it was written to a Jewish audience. And they would have understood that this had Old Testament significance to it. So it's very important for us to understand why these things are written. And people say, well, it doesn't flow from one gospel to the next. I told you before, it's like four people standing on, on a different corner at a street uh, intersection. And they all see a wreck. They see it from a different perspective, but it's the same thing. This is the same thing. John's standing over here. Luke's standing over there. Matthew's standing over here. And they've all got different crowds behind them to explain to them, hey, did you see that? This is what happened. And so you could better understand what it was. Here it is. And let me give it to you. And that's what it was. That's how that happened with the word Hosanna being left out in Luke, but yet added in John and Matthew. 
And then the Pharisees come out. The Pharisees, are they've trickled into the crowd, and they're out here, and, and some of the Pharisees legitimately were curious about Christ. Not all of them were just so hateful. Not all of them were just out to kill him. We know that from Nicodemus, all right? Joseph of Arimathea, they say that he was a quite prominent man in the, in the town. He may not have been a Pharisee, but he was well-known. And these guys were curious, and they're pressing in to hear and see Christ, Jesus, as he's riding in. And then to see the people breaking off palm branches and laying down their coats in front of Christ. They're like, no, 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 whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This, this is only supposed to happen for a king. And the Pharisees, no doubt, from this vantage point, from him coming down this mountain, they're looking back into the town, and they're seeing the Roman garrisons at the gates. And they're like, hold up, if, if, if you start pronouncing him as a king... Oh, this is going to stir up the Romans. This could cause us death. Matter of fact, for some of the Pharisees, they're like, this is going to remove us from our social status. We might not be able to be who we once were. They're worried about that. They're worried about themselves. They're also worried about the Jewish people. I think they, they had somewhat of a legitimate reason for saying what they said. But at the same time, I think it was very selfish too. Because they had not come to the realization of, if you had only known the time of my visitation, which we'll get to in just a moment. And so they're there. So in their effort to get Jesus to curb the enthusiasm of his followers, they were legitimately nervous. And Jesus, glancing around and seeing the joy in those followers' eyes, he was like, how in the world can I tell these guys to hush? How can I tell these boys, these girls, these men, these women that are so excited because they realize who I am? They realize why I'm here. I can't shut them up. And if you and I came into this place, this house of worship every day, realizing really who Jesus was, we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to keep these windows in these walls if we really understood who we're coming to worship. We can't let this be routine. I know you need to have a routine, but it don't need to be routine. Man, we're coming to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who chose to step off his throne in glory where everybody and everything was made to praise and glorify him. And he came here to be mocked and cursed and beaten and spat upon. And we come in here each week and we're more worried about what we've got on. And we're more worried about where we're going to eat. And we're more worried about this, that, and the other. And we're less concerned about is the glory and the praise going to be given to the one who deserves it. Listen, these folks, Jesus looked in their eyes and he looked around. He's riding on that donkey and he says, I cannot tell them to shut up. Because the rocks are immediately going to cry out. Rocks keep silent. Jesus come to set me free. Listen, there's nothing, there's nothing more glorious than to think about what Christ has done for you and for me. How amazing, how wonderful, how powerful, how worthy is he. We cannot grow tepid in our faith. It should be overflowing the scripture tells us that when christ comes in it's like a fountain that just overflows but sometimes i wonder if our fountain is broke the water's just stagnant in there and it's just 
If somebody throws something in it every once in a while, you might get a ripple. But that's not how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be because you have a relationship with Jesus. It's overflowing. You're not waiting for Brother Blake to throw you a, a, a pebble of the gospel in there on Sunday morning to see some ripples happen. You've got a relationship yourself, and you're in it all the time, every day. That's you and me. And listen, I'm not throwing, I'm not, I'm not getting on to you without the Lord getting on to me. I've got to be that same way. I've got to have a vibrant, ongoing, intimate relationship with Jesus. So that when he looks out from wherever he may be, whether it be the Holy Spirit or whether it be him sitting on his throne, he looks out and he sees in my eyes and he says, I ain't even got to worry about them rocks. Blake's got it handled. <laughs> Blake's got it handled. He's praising me. He's shouting. He's giving glory and praise. And he's looking out here at the members and the guests, the new Prospect Baptist Church, and he looks into your eyes and he says, you know what, I, I can't do that. Because those rocks are going to cry out if I tell them to hush. But thankfully, they're not. They're not going to be quiet. They're going to praise me through the week, through the day, from the month, from, from Sunday to Sunday, every single day, they're going to give me praise. I ain't got to worry about telling them to hush because they're going to handle it. They're going to have the right praise. Listen, Jesus, Jesus, even in his rebuke from the Pharisees, he was not disrespectful to them. You know, a lot of times people, people want to read in the scripture and say that Jesus, uh, Jesus was disrespectful to them. I believe in every instance you never see Jesus be disrespectful. He gets upset, you know, and angry, justifiably so, when they're selling stuff inside the temple. But he's not disrespecting them. He's respecting his father. There's a difference. There's a difference. Jesus speaks the truth plainly and unapologetically. What do we take from these few verses, 37 through 40? Let the Lord defend you. When the Lord looks out and the Lord, when let him see your worship and praise and let him hear your worship and praise. Lord, the Lord, I, I pray that the Lord's being rebuked by Pharisees because I'm giving the glory and the praise to him. Somebody coming up, somebody better tell that Jesus up there that Blake's being too loud. He's being too, he preaches too loud. He talks too loud. He sings too loud. Well, get over it. The Lord will tell him. How about you just get loud too? And don't get loud with complaining and murmuring. We talked about on Wednesday night what the Lord thinks about those folks. <laughs> Lord don't like that just by the way he must rather hear, your, hear praise come from your lips than complaints from your lips praise him let him see your worship and praise let him hear your worship and praise if others hear your worship and praise as they should and not for show but out of gratitude let the Lord deal with their hearts not you let the Lord deal with their hearts you're not going to be able to change it but the Lord can let the Lord change their hearts. And lastly, verses 41 through 44. It says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you, leave in you one stone upon another, 
because you did not know the time of your visitation. What a prophetic statement by the Lord. Jesus is remorseful over his city. He's broken. As he drew near, he looks over that city. And he's broken, not just, not just for the people of the city. He's broken for the city itself. We don't understand how glorious and beautiful Jerusalem was. Because all the pictures we see is Jerusalem after it's been re reconstructed. After it's been rebuilt. Because before A.D. 70... Before the Romans came in there and built the embankment and destroyed the city and burned the temple and did everything they did, Jerusalem, <coughs> Jerusalem was a was a international beautiful city. I mean, it's on the scale of some of the greatest cities ever built. And when Christ was coming down that mountain and he saw the temple and the glory of the temple and the glory of the city of Jerusalem, and he saw that, oh, what what a broken heart, because he knew what was going to come. And it wasn't just over brick and mortar that he was broken over or gold-laden gold things. He was broken over the people that make the city. He was broken over that. You know, Jesus, the Bible records only two times that Christ wept. The first time was when he comes into the town and, and Lazarus has died. That's the shortest verse in Scripture, Jesus wept. But that was kind of a quiet, subdued, sadness and lamenting but this when he comes in it's it's presented through the text it's presented through how it's said that he lamented loudly he was broken you know ugly cry you know what i mean that's, that's jesus he was ugly crying over jerusalem he was broken hearted over his city and his people his heart is for redemption and Jesus' mission was for the Father's will to be fulfilled. Jesus was broken over the Jews of Jerusalem and the lostness that gripped them. You know, Matthew 18, 11 is directly tied to Jesus' desire for the Jews. It says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Jesus was not angry with the Jews, but was burdened for their repentance. And he knew their hard-heartedness. If you had only known the time, there, verse 42, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. They could have had peace. They could have had peace with God. They could have had peace with man. I don't know how far that peace with man would have gone because we know mankind is all about creating wars and creating conflict, but we know that the greatest peace that anybody could ever have is with God the Father. And they could have had the right kind of peace that only softened their hearts. But they did not. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. One man, his name is H.D.M. Spence. He wrote in his commentary about verse 42. He says, there was still time, still one day left before this terrible trial time began, which filled up the measure of Jerusalem and her people's iniquity. Still one day in which had they only known the things which belonged to their peace, they might have won a forgiveness for all the past centuries of sin if they had only known Wearsby expresses an advantage of Jesus' knowledge that led to his weeping Wearsby wrote if Jesus looked back he saw how the nation wasted its opportunities and been ignorant of their time of visitation if Jesus looked within within the city he saw spiritual ignorance and blindness in the hearts of the people 
If Jesus looked around, he saw religious activity that accomplished very little. The temple had become a den of thieves, and the religious leaders were out to kill him. And then the most prophetic thing, which we see there in the latter part, verses 43 and 44. As Jesus looked ahead, he wept as he saw the terrible judgment that was, to, that was coming to the nation, the city, and temple. In AD 70, the Romans would come, and after a siege of 143 days, kill 600,000 Jews and take thousands more captive, and then destroy the temple and the city. Why did all this happen? Because the people did not know that God had visited them. Scripture tells us in John 1.11, He came into His own, and they received Him not. If they had only known the time of His visitation. Jesus was broken. He was remorseful over His city. Both the people and the literal city itself, all the glory was about to leave. The Romans were going to come in and kill 600,000 people and take many captive after that, burning the city and the temple. Jesus was broken over that, and he was remorseful. As we close this time, let us, let us not be found as the Jews were in Jerusalem on that day. Today, the Lord is alive and well. I believe the Lord is here, and I believe he is present. All you have to do is turn your eyes upon him. And as the hymn says, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.